making brands and sales of SA's entertainment industry. Business of Entertainment with Martin Myers on Cape Talk. On Cape Talk. Good evening and welcome to Cape Talk, the business of entertainment. It's just past 9 p.m. on Thursday and it's our time to dive into the machine that makes the entertainment ha- entertainment magic happen. With me, your host, Martin Myers. I look forward to welcoming you into my world of the business of entertainment for the next 30 minutes. So stay tuned. We promise you won't be disappointed if you are invested in the same way we are. We bring in guests to have a fireside chat to talk about what they are doing in in the entertainment business to inspire us all. If you are new to the broadcast, we're here to talk about the business side of the entire entertainment space for the next 30 minutes. You can always WhatsApp us on 072-567-1567 or you can tweet us at Cape Talk or at Martin Myers. And it gives me great pleasure this evening on this chilly Thursday night to welcome a man by the name of Nick Dahl. And you're going, who the hell is that? Well, Nick Dahl has an MA in creative writing from the University of Cape Town. He's written about everything from coelacanths to circus acts, and he's barely touched the surface. He lives in Cape Town with his wife and kids, and he has a book out entitled Legends, People Who Changed South Africa for the Better. You know, we have so many different opportunities in the entertainment space to talk about things. We've spoken to film composers. We've spoken to iconic musicians like Sipa Hotsticks, Mabuse, CEOs of major record companies, Mark Moreau from Island Records, um, publishers, people like Michael Yormark, the CEO and president of Rock Nation Sports International. And now we're bringing in an eminent author who is 42 years old. He writes with a partner, Matthew Blackman, and he's just brought out this book, Legends, People Who Changed South Africa for the Better. And why I've got him in studio tonight on this chilly Thursday night, he has a wonderful chapter about Miriam Makeba. She's in the music business. She's most probably the most iconic South African in the music business ever. But I wanted to touch on this discussion with Nick, and I've got a feeling it's going to be beautiful and warm, and there's going to be a lot coming out of it. Why is history so important. Nick, you're young, you're under 50, yet you've dived into this with passion and gusto. Thank you for giving up your Thursday night and welcome to Cape Talk. The floor is yours. Why is history so important to South Africans? Thanks for having me, Martin, and good evening, listeners. Um, history is important for everyone, but I think it's especially important for South Africans. Um We've got such a fascinating history, and it's also so contested. And and it's, I mean, someone said that, how can you know where you're going if you don't know where you've come from? And that's that's why Matthew and I think history is so important. We feel that if all South Africans had a slightly better understanding of our history, it might enable us to look at each other a bit more sympathetically and hopefully like forge a better future together. And And our history... I think I meet many people who think that South African history is boring. I mean, I myself at school thought South African history was boring, and I didn't even do history for matric. But of course, history is boring if you learn about the Great Trek every year. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that is boring. But our real history, which is not just about good black people and bad white people, I mean, that's such an oversimplification. 
our real history and the nuances and stuff. You just absolutely couldn't make them up. If if you put them in a Hollywood film, they'd say, this is nonsense. But they really happened. And, you know, the crazy, you know, the Tarbo Besta saga that we saw this year, there are loads of sagas like that throughout our 350-year history. It's it's just incredible. Now, Nick, um, you write with a partner, Matthew Blackman. Take us back to, to that DNA. How did you come about the two of you working together, um, putting books together? Because it's not your first one. You've kindly gifted me Rogue's Gallery as well, which we'll touch on. But I want to touch on Legends because you've got Miriam in there. And, and that fascinates me. But how did the two of you start writing? Matthew Blackman and Nick Dahl. Sounds like a band. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Um, so Matthew and I met at UCT when we were both studying a master's in creative writing. We were both aspiring novelists. And yeah, uh, that didn't happen. Um, but yeah, we so we met about, must be about 20 years ago. And we were good buddies. Like we, we just were interested in the same stuff. We, we've, we've been good friends ever since. And um, about five years ago, I guess, we made the very bad mistake of trying to sell rum in Cape Town <laughs> together. Here comes um, the story. I can see it. <laughs> so, yeah, I had been doing it. I'm a journalist sort of by day. And I'd been doing a, an article on Port Elizabeth and how it's not actually a shithole. Mm. Well, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, you can say that. Okay. And, and and it really isn't. I had a lovely time in Port Elizabeth. And and one of the people I met there was an artisan run maker who'd learned how to distill spirits from his opa in the free state. And had he was using the same stills and stuff. And I tried this rum and I thought, this is actually drinkable. You know, I've, I've never tried rum that's drinkable. Um, and I asked the guy if he had a distributor in Cape Town. And then, I don't know, the next thing I knew, Matthew and I were traipsing around sort of the industrial areas of Cape Town trying to flog <laughs> rum to people. And after about a year of this, we actually did sell some rum. That was the miraculous part of it. But not lots. Not lots. <laughs> but we realized that we just aren't cut out for this. We're not salesmen. You know, we're not, we don't really have the gift of the gab in this sort of context. And, but we've loved working together. Let's do something we actually can do. And we, so we thought, let's write a book. You know, we, okay. we love history. Yeah. We're both writers. Yeah. And, and let's write a history book. And we, we actually sat at Rhodes Memorial Tea Room before Drink, it burned down. Drinking rum? No, drinking coffee. It okay. was in the morning and, and brainstorming what could we write a book about. And suddenly it dawned on us that we'd, be, we'd heard so many people saying things like, this was in the time of sort of peak Zuma years. Hmm. Oh, if Zuma had done this. In any other era, he would have gone straight to jail. He wouldn't have gotten away with this, this, like, you know, the standards in this country and the courts and whatever. And and being sort of interested in history, we knew this wasn't true. And we thought, let's wonder if a book about the history of corruption in South Africa would work. Mm -hmm. Then we thought, but surely, you know, surely someone else has done it. And and we we looked and nobody had done it. And we so we, we started digging, and we, we knew a bit. We knew that Cecil Rhodes, you know, at Rhodes Memorial, yeah. was, was as corrupt as they come. Yeah. We knew about the information scandal in apartheid. Mm. I knew about Willem Adrian van der Stel, who, who established 
Fergelechen, or as we call it in Kandla 1.0, mm-hmm. um, in some of the West. But once we dug, we realized that basically this country has been corrupt as all hell since 1652. So yeah, that was Rogue's Gallery. And it kind of, it was quite well received. But, so, but Nick, you, you were talking about once we dug. Yeah. Is it yourself and Matthew deciding, okay, now we're going to do research? Or did you bring researchers in to see that, hang on, there's a book here? So, no, we, we do our own research. Um, we, we've we written three books together, and we, we do all our own research, but we also, you know, when you, when you, because all of our books take the whole sort of sweep of South African history since before the white man arrived to today. Mm. So obviously it's impossible to be an expert in all those eras. Sure. So we, we do our own digging and then we identify for each chapter someone who who really knows their stuff in that era. Mm-hmm. And ideally we speak to them before we write the chapter, we write the chapter, we send it to them and they give feedback. Doesn't always work out like that, but they always we always get an expert to read every chapter, at least one expert, often more. Can I ask you the question that sits at the back of my head while you're chatting i've got the two books in front of me which i'm very very grateful for do you need a publisher why couldn't you do this yourself and self-publish what does a publisher bring that you can't bring you're going to them with a finished product yeah so well in rogues gallery one thing they bring is a is a lawyer um you know (laughs) so you know i mean there were you know, there there was a bit of a risk of like defamation and stuff, and 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 it was read very carefully by a lawyer, and we did remove stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, that was one consideration. Um, but they also bring sort of expertise in creating a book that you know doesn't have any mistakes in it, that looks good, that a cover that that um that is appealing, the distribution network. I mean, yeah, so we. Self-publishing can work, and there are stories of it working well. And 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 if you get it to work, um, you make more money per book as the author. But I think Matthew and I, you've got to be like a real hustler to make mm-hmm. it work. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, you know, we're more into writing the stuff than than flogging it. So yeah, but like we're we're happy with our publishers, and and. I don't think we would self-publish this kind of book. I might self-publish a novel or something. You know, there's not all this fact-checking and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. You know, and you just you just need a cover and then there are words on the page. Here, there's we've got pictures, we've got um, indexes, bibliographies, and all. And I don't actually know how, where to start with yeah. all of that stuff. So there's quite a lot of moving parts. I hear you, but in South Africa, and we're talking broadly, and if you just joined us, you're on the business of entertainment with myself, Martin Myers, and the author, Nick Dahl, of the book Legends, People Who Changed South Africa for the Better. And he also wrote another book called Rogue's Gallery, an irreverent history of corruption in South Africa from the VOC to the ANC, along with his partner, Matthew Blackman. My other burning question is the reading culture in South Africa. Do we have one and then second to that, what's the sweet spot in terms of a size of a book? How many pages should it be for, for people to, to pick up and, and purchase a book? So we do have a reading culture, but it, it could be a lot bigger. Um, and I, I think, I mean, there are reasons for this. Um, some of it's just apathy. But, I, you know, there's some people who 
who are who can read perfectly capably and who have enough money to buy books, but they're just more interested in other stuff like watching. Are, are books too expensive in South Africa? That's well, another I, question I hear coming up regularly. Well, I mean, I I feel quite strongly that v- books should not be charged. There should be no VAT on locally produced books. So that to me is absurd. Agree. Um, you know, like maybe the. Jeffrey Archer, whatever, yeah, I'll pay that on that. But but I think a locally produced book, the margins are so tight, the the runs are so small. If if they could all cost fifteen percent less, I think that would make a big difference to people. You talk about the runs being so small. What what was the initial print run for something like Legends or, or Rogues Gallery? What would a publisher normally print and get it into market yeah, first it's a, off? It's a few thousand, three thousand, and then you know, often they they're printing. You know, if it's if the booksellers like it. They, they might print more before it's even hit the shelves, but but they they, they always hedge their bets, so that's a pretty small number, you know. Of a country of sixty million people, it's it's but minuscule. So, yeah, so I mean, in this country, there are you know some people who could afford books who don't read them, and there are others who who simply can't afford it, who aren't that literate, and I mean, so like building a reading culture is really about like fixing the education system, fixing the entire economy. You know, it's it's quite a big challenge. So. But I, I love your forthrightness where you, you're sitting and you're saying, please drop the vet on, on books. We need to push this reading culture. But I want to dive all the way back. We were having coffee prior to coming into the studio and you said you started writing at the age of nine. Where did that love, and it was a novel that you did, where did that love come from? We've had Dr. Trevor Jones, the film composer, come in and he started loving movies at the age of five. He went to, to the gem cinema hot sticks picked up picked up an instrument at school mark moreau also started at an incredibly early early age and all these incredibly successful people that we've had on the shows have started incredibly early in life how and why yeah i mean i think it's just for me it was reading you know it was just like an absolute eureka moment like when you go to sub a and suddenly like all those books have stories in them that you can access. And and I was just an obsessive reader. Like I, I learned to read quickly and I just started devouring books. And I mean, if you love reading books, you know, the, the idea of writing them sort of pops into your head soon enough. And yeah. And yet in my research, um, J.M. Kutsi gave you an award and that that was a, a novel. It was not nonfiction. Why did you not bring that out, or did you feel your love was on nonfiction and doing books like we're talking about tonight, Legends and Rogues Gallery? Yeah, so I I love writing for you know writing's sake, like actually making the words kind of work together and telling and like building suspense and and then humor and and like drama and all of that stuff. Um. I actually felt with the novels, like the, the the area where I lacked was was coming up with the stories, inventing a story that really worked, that really would grab people. So with this history stuff, like I don't have to do that because the stories are there already and they're so crazy and so entertaining. Like I just have to work out how best to tell them. So I, I, I've loved it. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't go back to novels. I don't read many novels at the moment. I mean, I guess I end up reading quite a lot of history books because just because of what I do, like you have to read a lot. Um, and, and I do read novels in between books, you know, like in between researching. 
but not as many as I used to. Nick, the timeline for for legends, this is not something overnight. Was it a six, eight month period of research and then working on who you wanted to interview and who did you want to look at in terms of legends, people who changed South Africa for the better? Because they're greats in here. They truly are, which we'll, 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 we'll dive into now, please. Yeah, so I mean, obviously that was, when, you, when you're trying to choose a dozen people, there are 12 people in the book who kind of represent all that's good about South Africa. And we, we wanted this, you know, to represent different eras, different races, men and women, you know, because there really are so many. This is something that we forget. You know, we've got a lot of bad history, but we've also got a lot of good history and incredible people. And, and you know, we're still going. Um, so we that was quite a kind of um, we, we had to think quite carefully about who to include. And, and there were a few sort of criteria we used. You know, we didn't want, you know, I think Mandela, Tutu, Sisulu, they're all great. And they, they're all, you know, if, if you're going to put the top 10 South Africans, they're probably all three are in it. But um, we thought that there was quite a lot of overlap there. So we, we just had Mandela and we thought we'll leave Tutu and Sisulu for the sequel. Mm. Um, you know, that, so that was definitely a consideration, like not too much overlap. Um, we wanted, you know, some are household names, some are not as well known. You know, they're, they're, you know, people should be familiar with the name, but they might not know the story. Um, so we, we wanted to to appeal to, you know, a foreigner maybe wants to read the life story of Nelson Mandela, but maybe a South African feels like I kind of know that, although. I have to say, when I was writing the Mandela chapter, I was reminded once again of what an incredible person he was and how many different stages his life went through and, and, and the many times he, he stood and you know fought injustice and, and in creative ways. So yeah, we, we just tried to create a mix that sort of represented the great and good history of this country that that is there for people who want to look and and m not many people see at at the moment we we're trying to change that if you just tuned into cape talk it's just after 9 p.m. in fact we sort of wrapping up our discussion this week with legends people who changed south africa for the better and i've got the author nick dahl with me tonight and what pricked my interest and why i wanted him in here tonight was about miriam makeba please unpack that story, Miriam. I don't think we understand as South Africans the magnitude and the gravitas of that woman and what she did for this country. And has she been honored and recognized enough? I read it and it was incredibly moving. I've had the great opportunity to meet her with um, Super Hot Sticks Babuse. I have an autograph from her, which I will treasure. Um, she cooked for us, which is mumsy, loved to do that. But um, I was very touched to to read that because there is such in-depth research. Give us some pointers that us lay people listening don't know about her. Yeah, well, I mean, when we chose to include her in the book, we, we kind of thought we should include her because she's a kind of the most famous South African musician. She's female. She's, you know, 
that was kind of, we didn't even know that much about him. Mm-hmm. And then when I sat down to to write the chapter, and she's, she wrote two autobiographies with different um, co-authors, and I read those two, two books, um, I was just blown away. I thought, you know, she she doesn't just deserve to be in this book. She's like the number one, like the most fascinating, the most crazy story of the dozen. I mean, she, her story, I've been saying this so many times, but you cannot make it up. She, when she was 18 days old, her mother was jailed for brewing beer illegally. So Miriam spent the first six months of her life in prison. Uh, she was born in 1932. And, and I mean, her life was miserable. She, the the only sort of ray of light in her life was music, which she was just supremely talented from at, you know, the school teachers could see instantly that she could sing. She had a presence. She just, she really had something. But she, she worked as a domestic worker. Her first job, the madam falsely accused her of stealing and called the cops. Luckily, the husband kind of knew the mad- his wife's tricks and, and persuaded the cops not to arrest her. Then Miriam had another job. With a family, they went down to Durban. The madam got her to like fill drum after drum with seashells. Miriam got arrested on the beat for being on a white's beach and charged with prostitution. I mean, like this kind of thing, just this ghastly madness. In like, other I words. mean, basically, her life should not have ended up the way it did, and and the reason that it didn't is singing. So she she appeared. In King Kong, which people probably, I mean, you, I'm sure, know well, a lot about, well. but but not many people know. And it was this musical about a black boxer, and it was produced, and it was, it was the biggest theater show South Africa had ever seen. I think 200,000 people saw it, um, mostly white. There were, there were blacks in the audience. And it was a big thing. And she was um, spotted by an American filmmaker, not actually in King Kong, in another show called African Jazz and Variety, which is also quite a big deal. His name was Lionel Rogerson. And he asked Miriam to sing two songs in his film, which was about, it was a critique of apartheid um, called Come Back Africa after the ANC slogan, Maibuye Africa. And Miriam sang these songs and he took her to the Venice Film F- Film Festival, and they were just people loved her. She she was way ahead of her time in that she wore her hair natural, like she didn't do braids, she didn't straighten it, she hardly used makeup, she was just like authentically herself. And he he decided, you know, this this woman is going to be a star, and he managed to get her to America took a bit of wangling because the South African government didn't want to give her a passport and all of that kind of thing. And like within days of her arrival, she was performing on US TV in front of 60 million viewers. I mean, she she writes in her autobiography that she, the, the TV host had to literally hold her up because when he told, just before she walked on, he said, oh, by the way, there's 60 million viewers. <laughs> and she like nearly collapsed. And I mean, she was huge in America and and her friends like the list of her friends so Harry Belafonte was a big deal for her he, he was very supportive of her career Sidney Poitier Charlton Heston Martin Luther King Nina Simone like these were just her baddies and then she got 
So like you kind of think she's made it. This is the end of the story. But then she married a guy called Stokely Carmichael, who was kind of close to Malcolm X, a black power leader. And she got canceled. Like the FBI, um, they just canceled her. They said she's, you know, he's too radical. And she had to leave America. She moved to um, Guinea in uh, West Africa on the invitation of the president, Sekuture, who was trying to establish a sort of African music industry, uh, like make uh, Guinea the epicenter of the African music industry. And she had to start again from scratch. And she had all these, um, she was friends with all the presidents of the newly African, independent African nations. Kaunda, Nyerere, um, Kenyatta, Ture, uh, all of them. And she she rebuilt her career uh, in touring Africa and Europe, became super famous again. Hold that thought. Yeah. She became super famous again. Throughout this discussion, and I wish there was a, a camera in studio to see your face has been a picture of light and love. This That to me sounds like your best chapter in the book if I had to single something out. Um, there's just a, a smile on your face from, from ear to ear <clears throat> about it because we really don't understand the gravitas. I had read it very quickly and to hear it being told by the author back again, uh, Nick Dahl is absolutely thrilling are you are you thrilled with the way the book turned out and in closing we're coming to the end and hopefully i can get you back next week because i think we've got to talk about rogues gallery which was the precursor to legends um people who want to write how do they start do you just start putting pen to paper yeah i mean and there's, start there's doing a, stuff there's a saying and it's it's pretty straightforward um writers write like that's what you do like mm. i mean it's people talk about writer's block and and all of that stuff but i mean i my job has been writing for for a good uh, 20 years and it's not all you know fun history books i do i do all sorts of writing i do copywriting and journalism and stuff and but if if you just put words on a page every single day you get better at it mm. you know like you learn how they work together and you can even when you're not feeling inspired, you can still get stuff on the page. Even if, you know, you might not end up using it. You know, tomorrow you might read it and think it's rubbish, but it's still. I think it's just the routine. You know, you can't write a book in a, in a week. It's you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and and the only way to do it is to do a little bit every day. In closing off, and we're coming to the end of our discussion this week with Nick Dahl um, about the book Legends: People Who Changed South Africa for the Better, because you do have. Options. You can either go to the theater, you can go to a movie, you can go to a concert, you can go to a rugby game, or you can pick up a book. And we're urging you to pick up a book. Spend <laughs> that money on reading and in building the reading culture in this country. Um, where to from now? Because this wasn't researched in a week. What's next for Nick Dahl and Matthew Blackman? Yeah, so I mean, we, you know, when a book comes out, you do want to just sort of breathe a little bit. And so, we're not diving into anything right yet, but we, we've got plenty of ideas. I mean, I think a sequel to Legends is an option. I can give you some names. Mm. No, I mean, we've got names and, and people have, you know, everyone we talk to says, oh, you've got to include so-and-so. So the list is getting longer and longer. Um, a sequel but to Rogue's Gallery. That, that, that must be lovely. The list is getting longer and longer because you realize 
the gravitas that we do have here because sometimes we always seem to look on the negativity in South Africa. But we are a resilient nation, am I right? Yeah, I mean, so whenever we when we were writing the book and we mentioned, you know, we're writing a book about the good people in South Africa's history. The, the same joke came up again and again. Everyone said, oh, that must be a very short book. You know, and we'd we'd laugh along with them and then say, well, actually, you know, we've got like 50 people on the list and it's growing. So, you know, we've got a lot of skeletons in our history, but for every skeleton, there was someone, you know, trying to trying to thwart them. So, so we've, I think, you know, look at the country, like it's got its problems, but it's also still, so we're still bumbling along. And thanks to all of these people who, who've done amazing things. I mean, people don't realize that in 1854, South Africa had the, you know, men of all races could vote. We had the most liberal constitution in the British Empire. Mm. Um, so, you know, like there have been good moments too. And on that note, there have been good moments too. It's been an absolute joy to have you in studio, Nick. Thank you for giving up your Thursday night. But please, can you come back next week? I've got another book in front of me that we didn't even touch on, Rogue's Gallery, and I've got one or two more questions about legend. Nick Dahl, thank you for coming in and giving up your chilly Thursday evening on Cape Talk, the business of entertainment. Any final words? No, just uh, thanks to, very much to you, Martin. I mean, the pleasure's been all mine. I, I never miss an opportunity to talk, to like remind people just how incredible and rich and, and wonderful our history is. I mean, it hasn't all been good, but it has all been fascinating and it has all contributed to, you know, the country we are today and the people we are today. And on that beautiful note, from the business of entertainment, myself, Martin Myers, thank you, good night, and see you next Thursday at 9 p.m. Good night. Making brands and sense of SA's entertainment industry. Business of Entertainment with Martin Myers on K-Talk. On K-Talk.